Section 7 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1F, Section 7, Chapter 64, Part 3. The Parliament met soon after, and gave the sanction of law to those regulations made by royal authority, as well as appointed commissioners for deciding all such questions of property as might arise from the fire. They likewise voted a supply of one million eight hundred thousand pounds to be levied, partly by a poll bill, partly by assessments. Though their inquiry brought out no proofs which could fix on the papists the burning of London, the general aversion against that sect still prevailed, and complaints were made, probably without much foundation, of its dangerous increase. Charles, at the desire of the commons, issued a proclamation for the banishment of all priests and Jesuits, but the bad execution of this, as well as of former edicts, destroyed all confidence in his sincerity, whenever he pretended an aversion towards the Catholic religion. Whether suspicions of this nature had diminished the king's popularity is uncertain, but it appears that the supply was voted much later than Charles expected, or even than the public necessities seemed to require. The intrigues of the Duke of Buckingham, a man who wanted only steadiness to render him extremely dangerous, had somewhat embarrassed the measures of the court, and this was the first time that the king found any considerable reason to complain of a failure of confidence in this House of Commons. The rising symptoms of ill-humor tended, no doubt, to quicken the steps which were already making towards a peace with foreign enemies. Charles began to be sensible that all the ends for which the war had been undertaken were likely to prove entirely abortive. The Dutch, even when single, had defended themselves with vigor, and were every day improving in their military skill and preparations. Though their trade had suffered extremely, their extensive credit enabled them to levy great sums, and while the seamen of England loudly complained of want of pay, the Dutch navy was regularly supplied with money, and everything requisite for its subsistence. As two powerful kings now supported them, every place, from the extremity of Norway to the coast of Bayonne, was become hostile to the English. And Charles, neither fond of action nor stimulated by any violent ambition, earnestly sought for means of restoring tranquillity to his people, disgusted with a war which, being joined with the plague and fire, had proved so fruitless and destructive. The first advances towards an accommodation were made by England. When the king sent for the body of Sir William Berkeley, he insinuated to the states his desire of peace on reasonable terms, and their answer corresponded in the same amicable intentions. Charles, however, to maintain the appearance of superiority, still insisted that the state should treat at London, 
and they agreed to make him this compliment so far as concerned themselves but being engaged in alliance with two crowned heads they could not they said prevail with these to depart in that respect from their dignity on a sudden the king went so far on the other side as to offer the sending of ambassadors to the hague but this proposal which seemed honorable to the dutch was meant only to divide and distract them by affording the english an opportunity to carry on cobbles with the disaffected party the offer was therefore rejected and conferences were secretly held in the queen mother's apartments at paris where the pretensions of both parties were discussed the dutch made equitable proposals either that all things should be restored to the same condition in which they stood before the war or that both parties should continue in possession of their present acquisitions charles accepted of the latter proposal and almost everything was adjusted except the disputes with regard to the isle of polaron this island lies in the east indies and was formerly valuable for its produce of spices the english had been masters of it but were dispossessed at the time when the violences were committed against them at amboyna cromwell had stipulated to have it restored and the hollanders having first entirely destroyed all the spice trees maintained that they had executed the treaty but that the english had been anew expelled during the course of the war charles renewed his pretensions to this island and as the reasons on both sides began to multiply and seemed to require a long discussion it was agreed to transfer the treaty to some other place and charles made choice of breda lord hollis and henry coventry were the english ambassadors they immediately desired that a suspension of arms should be agreed to till the several claims should be adjusted but this proposal seemingly so natural was rejected by the credit of de witt that penetrating and active minister thoroughly acquainted with the characters of princes and the situation of affairs had discovered an opportunity of striking a blow which might at once restore to the dutch the honor lost during the war and severely revenged those injuries which he ascribed to the wanton ambition and injustice of the english whatever projects might have been formed by charles for secreting the money granted him by parliament he had hitherto failed in his intention the expenses of such vast armaments had exhausted all the supplies and even a great debt was contracted to the seamen the king therefore was resolved to save as far as possible the last supply of one million eight hundred thousand pounds and to employ it for payment of his debts as well those which had been occasioned by the war as those which he had formerly contracted he observed that the dutch had been with great reluctance forced into the war and that the events of it were not such as to inspire them with great desire of its continuance the french he knew had been engaged into hostilities by no other motive than that of supporting their ally and were now more desirous than ever of putting an end to the quarrel the differences between the parties were so inconsiderable that the conclusion of the peace appeared infallible and nothing but forms at least some vain points of honor seemed to remain for the ambassadors at breda to discuss in this situation charles moved by an ill-timed frugality remitted his preparations 
and exposed England to one of the greatest affronts which it has ever received. Two small squadrons alone were equipped, and during a war with such potent and martial enemies, everything was left almost in the same situation as in times of the most profound tranquillity. De Witt protracted the negotiations at Breda, and hastened the naval preparations. The Dutch fleet appeared in the Thames, under the command of De Ruyter, and threw the English into the utmost consternation. A chain had been drawn across the river Medway. Some fortifications had been added to Sheerness and Upnor Castle. But all these preparations were unequal to the present necessity. Sheerness was soon taken, nor could it be saved by the valor of Sir Edward Sprague, who defended it. Having the advantage of a spring tide and an easterly wind, the Dutch pressed on and broke the chain, though fortified by some ships, which had been there sunk by orders of the Duke of Albemarle. They burned the three ships which lay to guard the chain, the Matthias, the Unity, and the Charles V. After damaging several vessels and possessing themselves of the hull of the Royal Charles, which the English had burned, they advanced with six men of war and five fire-ships as far as Upnor Castle, where they burned the Royal Oak, the Loyal London, and the Great James. Captain Douglas, who commanded on board the Royal Oak, perished in the flames, though he had an easy opportunity of escaping. Never was it known, he said, that a Douglas had left his post without orders. The Hollanders fell down the Medway without receiving any considerable damage and it was apprehended that they might next tide-sail up the Thames, and extend their hostilities even to the Bridge of London. Nine ships were sunk at Woolwich, four at Blackwall. Platforms were raised in many places, furnished with artillery. The train-bands were called out, and every place was in a violent agitation. The Dutch sailed next to Portsmouth, where they made a fruitless attempt. They met with no better success at Plymouth. They insulted Harwich. They sailed again up the Thames as far as Tilbury, where they were repulsed. The whole coast was in alarm, and had the French thought proper at this time to join the Dutch fleet and to invade England, consequences the most fatal might justly have been apprehended. But Lewis had no intention to push the victory to such extremities. His interest required that a balance should be kept between the two maritime powers not that an uncontrolled superiority should be given to either. Great indignation prevailed amongst the English to see an enemy, whom they regarded as inferior, whom they had expected totally to subdue, and over whom they had gained many honorable advantages, now of a sudden ride undisputed masters of the ocean, burn their ships in their very harbors, fill every place with confusion, and strike a terror into the capital itself. But though the cause of all these disasters could be ascribed neither to bad fortune, to the misconduct of admirals, nor to the ill behavior of seamen, but solely to the avarice, at least to the improvidence, of the government, no dangerous symptoms of discontent appeared, and no attempt for an insurrection was made by any of those numerous sectaries who had been so openly branded for their rebellious principles, and who, upon that supposition, had been treated with such severity. In the present distress, 
two expedients were embraced an army of twelve thousand men was suddenly levied and the parliament though it lay under prorogation was summoned to meet the houses were very thin and the only vote which the commons passed was an address for breaking the army which was complied with this expression of jealousy showed the court what they might expect from that assembly and it was thought more prudent to prorogue them till next winter but the signing of the treaty at breda extricated the king from his present difficulties the english ambassadors received orders to recede from those demands which however frivolous in themselves could not now be relinquished without acknowledging a superiority in the enemy polaron remained with the dutch satisfaction for the ships bonaventure and good hope the pretended grounds of the quarrel were no longer insisted on acadie was yielded to the french the acquisition of new york a settlement so important by its situation was the chief advantage which the english reaped from a war in which the national character of bravery had shone out with lustre but where the misconduct of the government especially in the conclusion had been no less apparent to appease the people by some sacrifice seemed requisite before the meeting of parliament and the prejudices of the nation pointed out the victim the chancellor was at this time much exposed to the hatred of the public and every party which divided the nation all the numerous sectaries regarded him as their determined enemy and ascribed to his advice and influence those persecuting laws to which they had lately been exposed the catholics knew that while he retained any authority all their credit with the king and the duke would be entirely useless to them nor must they ever expect any favor or indulgence even the royalists disappointed in their sanguine hopes of preferment threw a great load of envy on clarendon into whose hands the king seemed at first to have resigned the whole power of government the sale of dunkirk the bad payment of the seamen the disgrace at chatham the unsuccessful conclusion of the war all these misfortunes were charged on the chancellor who though he had ever opposed the rupture with holland thought it still his duty to justify what he could not prevent a building likewise of more expense and magnificence than his slender fortune could afford being unwarily undertaken by him much exposed him to public reproach as if he had acquired great riches by corruption the populace gave it commonly the appellation of dunkirk house the king himself who had always more revered than loved the chancellor was now totally estranged from him amidst the dissolute manners of the court that minister still maintained an inflexible dignity and would not submit to any condescensions which he deemed unworthy of his age and character buckingham a man of profligate morals happy in his talent for ridicule but exposed his own conduct to all the ridicule which he threw on others still made him the object of his raillery and gradually lessened in the king that regard which he bore to his minister when any difficulties arose either for want of power or money the blame was thrown on him who it was believed had carefully at the restoration checked all lavish concessions to the king and what perhaps touched charles more nearly he found in clarendon it is said obstacles to his pleasures as well as to his ambition 
The king, disgusted with the homely person of his consort, and desirous of having children, had hearkened to proposals of obtaining a divorce, on pretense either of her being pre-engaged to another, or having made a vow of chastity before her marriage. He was further stimulated by his passion for Mrs. Stuart, daughter of a Scotch gentleman, a lady of great beauty, and whose virtue he had hitherto found impregnable. But Clarendon, apprehensive of the consequences attending a disputed title, and perhaps anxious for the succession of his own grandchildren, engaged the Duke of Richmond to marry Mrs. Stuart, and thereby put an end to the king's hopes. It is pretended that Charles never forgave this disappointment. When politics, therefore, and inclination both concurred to make the king sacrifice Clarington to popular prejudices, the memory of his past services was not able any longer to delay his fall. The great seal was taken from him, and given to Sir Orlando Bridgman by the title of Lord Keeper. Southampton, the treasurer, was now dead, who had persevered to the utmost in his attachments to the Chancellor. The last time he appeared at the council-table, he exerted his friendship with a vigor which neither age nor infirmities could abate. "'This man,' said he, speaking of Clarendon, "'is a true Protestant and an honest Englishman, and while he enjoys power, we are secure of our laws, liberties, and religion.' I dread the consequences of his removal. But the fall of the Chancellor was not sufficient to gratify the malice of his enemies. His total ruin was resolved on. The Duke of York, in vain, exerted his interest in behalf of his father-in-law. Both prince and people united in promoting that violent measure, and no means were thought so proper for ingratiating the court with a Parliament which had so long been governed by that very minister who was now to be the victim of their prejudices. Some popular acts paved the way for the session, and the Parliament, in their first address, gave the King thanks for these instances of his goodness, and among the rest they took care to mention his dismission of Clarendon. The King, in reply, assured the Houses that he would never again employ that nobleman in any public office whatsoever. Immediately the charge against him was opened in the House of Commons by Mr. Seymour, afterwards Sir Edward, and consisted of seventeen articles. The House, without examining particulars, further than hearing general affirmations that all would be proved, immediately voted his impeachment. Many of the articles we know to be either false or frivolous, and such of them as we are less acquainted with we may fairly presume to be no better grounded. His advising the sale of Dunkirk seems the heaviest and truest part of the charge, but a mistake in judgment, allowing it to be such, where there appear no symptoms of corruption or bad intentions, it would be very hard to impute as a crime to any minister. The king's necessities, which occasioned that measure, cannot with any appearance of reason be charged on Clarendon and chiefly proceeded from the over-frugal maxims of the Parliament itself, in not granting the proper supplies to the Crown. When the impeachment was carried up to the peers, as it contained an accusation of treason in general, without specifying any particulars, it seemed not a sufficient ground for committing Clarendon to custody. 
the precedents of stratford and laud were not by reason of the violence of the times deemed a proper authority but as the commons still insisted upon his commitment it was necessary to appoint a free conference between the houses the lords persevered in their resolution and the commons voted this conduct to be an obstruction to public justice and a precedent of evil and dangerous tendency they also chose a committee to draw up a vindication of their own proceedings clarington finding that the popular torrent united to the violence of power ran with impetuosity against him and that a defence offered to such prejudiced ears would be entirely ineffectual thought proper to withdraw at calais he wrote a paper addressed to the house of lords he there said that his fortune which was but moderate had been gained entirely by the lawful avowed profits of his office and by the voluntary bounty of the king that during the first years after the restoration he had always concurred in opinion with the other councillors men of such reputation that no one could entertain suspicions of their wisdom or integrity that his credit soon declined and however he might disapprove of some measures he found it vain to oppose them that his repugnance to the dutch war the source of all the public grievances was always generally known as well as his disapprobation of many unhappy steps taken in conducting it and that whatever pretense might be made of public offences his real crime that which had exasperated his powerful enemies was his frequent opposition to exorbitant grants which the importunity of suitors had extorted from his majesty the lords transmitted this paper to the commons under the appellation of a libel and by a vote of both houses it was condemned to be burned by the hands of the hangman the parliament next proceeded to exert their legislative power against clarendon and passed a bill of banishment and incapacity which received the royal assent he retired into france where he lived in a private manner he survived his banishment six years and he employed his leisure chiefly in reducing into order the history of the civil wars for which he had before collected materials the performance does honor to his memory and except whitlock's memorials is the most candid account of those times composed by any contemporary author end of section seven chapter sixty four part three recording by jim dennison j i m d e n i s o n dot i can voice dot com